if you will, open your Bibles uh, to where we left off last week in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we'll pick up our reading in just a moment in verse 10. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. This morning, I want to draw to a close the the series, The Essential Family. Now, I hope that our study has reinforced the importance of the biblically defined family and provided some tools and strategies for defending and cultivating a biblically healthy family life. Also, I would pray that you have been alerted and appropriately alarmed that the long-recognized assault upon the family is reaching its philosophical and logical destination and accomplishing its strategic goal of not only destroying the biblical notion of family, but of assaulting human identity, redefining morality, undermining truth, and distorting reality. In doing this, they, the moral and cultural revolutionaries, have undermined human flourishing while also increasingly destabilizing a culture that has long suppressed the knowledge of the truth. So that not only have the lines been blurred between vice and virtue, we're in danger of becoming so debased and divorced from real reality that the gospel is increasingly unintelligible to those who insist that they can live and that we must live in their immoral, illogical, irrational, incoherent, and ill-conceived world that will soon collapse on them and upon us if we're not faithful to the truth. So we'll conclude our series this morning. We have been thinking about reversing the curse and trying to help us to understand and help husbands to employ this great reality that indeed, I believe God has assigned to us as men, as husbands, as fathers, the role of prophet and priest and king to our families. So let's look at verse 10, 2 Timothy 3. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness in my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own pleasures and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for your word to us. It is a word that confronts us with the reality of our sin and again, the reality of your truth. We are thankful because of these realities for your gospel. We're thankful that because of Christ, we have the knowledge and the certainty of a salvation accomplished by him 2,000 years ago at the cross of Calvary. Father, I pray for those that are in these seemingly endless seasons of suffering, of loss, of affliction. I pray, God, for your grace upon those that are indeed suffering. I pray, God, that we would know how to walk with them, to aid them, to encourage them in a world that is discouraging. Bless us today. May we hear your word. May I be able to adequately communicate uh, your truth. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Taking the opportunity over the last few weeks uh, in talking about sermons and sermon preparation and kind of some of the technical things that go on in the course of preparation, some of the things that go into uh, the sermon itself. And one of the things that I do in structuring a sermon is there's typically two introductions. There is a kind of a general in introduction in which I'm going to tell you this is what we're about to talk about. And what I hope to do then is, of course, draw your attention to the subject, to, to the purpose, uh, to create some interest. Sometimes I'll pose a question that I'll attempt to answer in the course of a sermon. That's typically that first bit I do. And then I read the text, and then we pray. And then there's a second introduction. Typically, I will give you some background as to the text that we're going to preach from. And Sometimes I'll, I'll give you a kind of a, a connection as to what we did previously. Last week, I introduced you to the theme of the husband as the prophet, priest, and king uh, of their families. And so we're going back to that. And we're going to talk about that more primarily in terms of the husband as God's prophet in his home, okay? And so there, I, want, I want you to see these things in continuity. Now, there's a third thing, and sometimes I take this segment to emphasize why this is important with often peculiar relevance to the right here and right now. Now, I want to say to you that I find it difficult to end this series since my Sanctity of Life Sunday sermon, I've been just kind of collecting a file, and I've heard the commercial about you don't have to download the Internet. I know that. But I make hard copies of a lot of things that I think are pertinent, stick them in a file to use for 
illustrations and background uh, for uh, sermons. And just this week, as I'm trying to wrap this thing up, I'm going, oh, I got to, you know, I got I to read this. I got to look at this. I, I, th- this is crazy. But we're living in the same world. And again, my commitment has always been, I don't get up here every Sunday and preach to you what made me mad this week. Now, I'm not saying I didn't get mad this week. I'm not saying it isn't worthy of bringing it into the pulpit. But we try to do verse-by-verse exposition. But in choosing what we have been talking about, we've got problems in this culture. And I, if, if, if you need, we need to pay attention, okay? We need to pay attention as to what is going on. So I, I can imagine being criticized for the sermon today and, in fact, the entire sermon series. Some could say that I am I'm, I'm just wrong. I'm, I'm misguided. I'm, I'm irrelevant. I'm an alarmist, etc. Now, if we disagree on an issue, as an American, to some degree, I'll defend your right to be wrong. As an American, okay? Uh, you know, to, to, to a certain degree, free speech, I can't coerce you into believing the truth. I can't browbeat you into believing the truth. So I will, uh, I will, I will allow for that. Now, it's possible, barely, okay? It is possible, but barely possible that I could be wrong. Just seeing if y'all are listening about a text or an issue. I am accountable first and foremost to God. Then I am accountable to you as you are to me for proclaiming and acting upon the truth. We always desire to either be correct or to be corrected. Okay, we want to be right or be directed toward that which is right and true. As your pastor, unless I'm proven wrong, then I would encourage you to examine the Scripture and establish and define where and how I've failed or made an error. And I've said it many times. I mean, I can't step up here and go, and I'm just not sure what you ought to think here. I don't know. I, you know, this passage kind of, it's kind of quirky. It's, it's kind of hard. And they, you know, you just, y'all just figure it out for yourself. That simply doesn't work. You wouldn't, you wouldn't pay me to do this, to give you that kind. So if we disagree, then we should examine both the Scriptures or examine the Scriptures and seek to point one another toward biblical truth. Again, there is an accountable relationship. I am accountable for you, but remember, you're accountable for me, or accountable uh, for me. So, that being said, it's interesting. Ellen and I were at a, a gathering last summer. Now, I know, and I embarrass my wife all the time, uh, or at least alarm her pretty, pretty constantly. I know y'all can't imagine that. But I'm pretty strategic. I've, I, as much goofy things as I say, most of the time, it's purposeful. That I'm either trying to work a conversation towards biblical truth, and if I don't think kind of that slow and gentle approach work, I'll say something kind of outlandish or controversial just to gauge where people are. Okay? Just to kind of see where, where they are. Now, I was not looking for trouble. You understand. 
And we were at a social gathering, and I, I can't even remember how this came up. But I made the comment, biblically speaking, biblical truth, biblical doctrine, wives should submit to their husbands. And this woman gave me a look. Whoa! I bet if you ask any woman here, which was about 20, they would tell you we don't have to submit to our husbands. These are all professing Christians, every single one of them. Now, I didn't think, you know, you can't always think of everything you should say in the moment. But I didn't want there to be a major blow up at a social set. That's usually counterproductive. Uh, And so I think I've said something about, well, I'm afraid lightning's about to strike here. I'm going to move across the room. You know, I, I don't, but, but here's the thing. Now, it's kind of like that, the issue of the doctrine of election and predestination. Preacher, I don't believe none of that stuff. You believe the Bible? Well, it's right there. Right there. Right there for you to look at. It's right there. Now, you may be doing it using a different dictionary than I am. That's possible. We need to talk about those things. But you can't go, nah, I just don't believe that stuff. And you can't look at God's mandates, God's commands related to the family and go, yeah, not, I don't have to do that. You do it at your own peril. Now, that's like, we may, it may look a little different in your family than my family. I've never stood up here and said, you're living in sin if the husband's not paying the bills and balancing the checkbook. I mean, we could go through any number. No, I'm, sometimes... You look at giftedness and time and just, there's all kinds of things. But husbands, fathers, you must lead your families. And let me assure you, if you don't, somebody else will. Somebody accused me of confusing biblical preaching with the moral and political issues of our day. Possibly, okay. However, hear me, hear me. However, there's no such thing as politics apart from morality, and there is no morality apart from a truth claim or even a system of truth. Somebody's truth and somebody's morality is going to be legislated, enforced, and adjudicated. The question is whose morality will be enacted. Is the moral basis for laws subjective? Is that subjectivity a personal preference or a cultural phenomenon? Are there things that are objectively wrong? If there are, why are they objectively wrong? By what standard do we define right, wrong, vice or virtue, truth or lie? Are these things defined by my personal standards or the standards of the majority or the standards of the cultural elites? Or is truth and therefore morality rooted in something or someone that is transcendent? Are there objective moral standards or are there ever-changing personal or cultural preferences? Think about that one for just a minute. Now remember, 80 years ago in Nazi Germany, it was considered a virtue to murder 6 to 8 million people simply because they were Jews, simply because of their personal opinion. 
about the worthiness of these people to live. So, when I say that a transcendent and eminent God has revealed himself and established objective truth intrinsic to his perfectly holy essence, and that revelation is made known through his word, that word then defines for us his standards and his roadmap for our survival. He has established a real world with real reality. He has defined what it means to be human and how humans should live in his beautifully designed community, namely the family. So again, I remind you that we defend and we proclaim the truth about humanity, sexuality, family, and reality because they are all issues of eternal value and they're all intrinsically tied for our hope for eternity, namely the gospel. Or to say it another way, when reality and sanity are as assaulted as they are in our day, when those subversive ideologies are embraced, then the concept of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent for our salvation makes no sense whatsoever. A world that can't define what a woman is or what a woman is not can't understand the significance of the woman's unique seed whose name is Jesus Christ crushing our enemies of Satan, sin, and death by his death on the cross in the course of real reality for the sake of real redemption. So, think and act biblically, even when it comes to your marriage and the family, or you are joining the moral revolutionaries who will not only redefine and then destroy your family, they'll destroy you and your world as well. Let me read an excerpt I ran across this week. Imagine that. Connected to this. Some of you may have heard of a senator from Missouri by the name of Josh Hawley. I think he's a fairly young guy, maybe in his 40s. You know you're old when you think people in their 40s are young, okay? In fact, one of our young ladies has taken to the practice of when she greets me, Hey, old man! I forgive her. So, Hawley has written a book, Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. Now, this is from an interview with Albert Moeller, president of Southern Seminary, and this young senator, Josh Hawley. American men really are in a crisis. And if you look across the data, it's really clear. You can look at the number of men committing suicide, the number of men struggling with depression, the number of fatherless homes, which continues to go up. And in this country, the number of men who are out of work and not even looking for work. And I think if you look at those various indicators, what you see is there's really a crisis of men in this country. And the question is, why and what are we going to do about it? They continue in talking about the book. The book is an argument about what the left has done in terms of its cultural argument and its cultural power that it has amassed. And the argument that they have made to men is, it's not really an argument, actually. It's more of a hectoring shouting from the left, which goes something like this. If you're a man, you are toxic. If you're a man, you make the world a worse place just by being a man. That's especially true of traditional masculinity. 
which is, of course, for them a curse word or a curse phrase. And so I think that American men have heard this, and they have had this drummed into their heads for decades now. They start on it, the left does, and as early as when our kids go to kindergarten, where boys are told they shouldn't be rambunctious. I was talking to somebody this morning, and a herd of wild Indians went straight through here. I mean, round, loudy, to go over here and be round and loudy. That's what little boys do, okay? And so they still, they, they, they're told they need to sit still, and otherwise they're medicated, their play is interrupted, and this continues through their school years. And, of course, then it reaches a crescendo when they go to college or university. I think the message that the left has sent, which is that there's something fundamentally wrong with masculinity, and they're now also saying that there's something fun fundamentally wrong with womanhood, that it doesn't exist either, that, itself, it, that that message in itself is a toxic message. You want to talk about what's toxic? That message is toxic, and you can see its effect on men over the years and over the decades. They go on to talk about how do, how do we get to this place? He speaks of what's called cultural Marxism. Now, if I grew up in the coldest days of the Cold War. Of the Cold War, you know, again, Russia, China, Vietnam—that—that's my background. The cultural Marxists have taken their cue. All of this stuff is related to uh, a, a school of philosophy in Germany. And this is where what's called critical theory has come from, the communism, the socialism, the feminism, the liberalism, all of the alphabet soup, that, that all it spells out is insane, okay? That's all the alphabet soup spells out. You look at it, just read insane, okay? It'll work, okay? It's kind of like, you know, bless your heart. If you'll just, sub you know, I don't want to go there. All of that stuff, insane. But here's the thing, the focus of the cultural Marxists was on our biblical heritage here. It was on the distinction between male and female. It was on the traditional family, our history as a nation. Anything that smacked of the Bible and the Bible's influence, these cultural Marxists wanted to overturn because they defined that as oppressive obstacles that were preventing the revolution. This new generation of Marxists really wanted there to be a cultural revolution. They were less interested in economics but they were primarily interested in a cultural revolution. And what stood in the way? What was the obstacle? People who believed the Bible, our connection to biblical truth. And they worked their lying, insane ideology through the academy, through the schools, okay? Through, through the uh, universities. As they, everybody bought in to this lie. I cannot tell you how many people I've known that went off to college to train their mind and lost their mind in the process. So, another observation from this interview. He makes the point that nature initiates women into womanhood, okay? But culture must initiate boys into manhood. And so you have to do something, and there needs to be these cultural moments, this cultural effort, society-wide effort, made where we say, here's what it looks like 
to be a good man. Here's what it looks like to not be a boy any longer. Being a boy is great. I've got boys. We, w- we want to train them to be boys, but we want to mature them into being responsible and strong and dependable men. Our society, under the influence of these ideologies that we've just talked about, has largely abandoned these rites of passage, these rites of in- initiation, and the whole idea of transition from boys to men. Years and years ago, Brian Stanley introduced me to a term, I'd never heard it, prolonged adolescence. Now, one of the things that that we talk about around here, and and we're very intentionally going about this, and I want to say, we're, we're very, very thankful. We've got a group of young people that are transitioning out of high school into college, and into careers and other, other things, and that, that's great. I want to say to the church, and I want to say to these young people, you're not children anymore. You're young adults. Now, you're young, but it is time to mature and to grow up and to understand what it means to, to be an adult and, and accept adult responsibilities. As I thought about this this week, Ellen and I took a, a, a raft trip down the Yellowstone River last summer. I've noticed this phenomenon uh, as I've gotten interested in snow skiing. There's what's called a ski bum. They're very proud of being ski bums. Uh, Now, usually it starts with, okay, I'm going to take a semester off of college and I'm going to go out to Colorado or wherever and I'm going to work at a ski resort. Now they're 65 years old and they're waiting on tables and, and living with six people in a two-bedroom apartment, okay, and just so they can ski. And, if, and if, if it snows, guess what? Whatever job they got, they don't even show up because they've got to go get on the powder. And that's a phenomenon unique to our culture. We, we took this river trip, and the young man in his early 20s was our guide. And he said he was very proud that he had bought some old van, and that's where he's living. In a car, in a van. Had no plan. No, I mean, that's fine for a season of life. That would be interesting. And maybe he will transition out of that. But let me tell you something. Let me drop a name. Bryce Evans. There was no time for such foolishness in the household of Bryce Evans. By the time, seriously, by the time I was 12 or 13... I was thinking about, okay, this is what I got to do. I'm going to grow up. I'm going to have a family. I'm going to make a living. This is what I got to do to prepare. I got to be thinking about this. Because you've heard me say, the, the default setting, had I done nothing? Yeah. I would have been digging ditches and driving nails, which is not what I wanted to do. Nothing wrong with it. And I regret wasting the opportunities that I had to learn. But I'm telling you, we've got a problem and I think, you know, mothers, we've been talking a lot to men. Now, you, there is just a unique connection between a mother and their sons. Y'all, y'all understand that, and, and, and it's true. But they need your toughness, too, as well as your tenderness. Okay, well, let's get into the text. Second Timothy 3, we've talked about this business Husbands, fathers, you're a prophet. God has called you to be a prophet within your home, to speak the truth 
and defend the truth. And we kind of ended up here last week. Look at verse 12 of 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus said it. Hey, they hated me first. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. So persecution is coming. Could be hard persecution. Could be what we call soft persecution. Now, I'm speaking of persecution at some level in distinction from affliction. Affliction is just the realities of living in a fallen world that come to human beings, whether they're believers or unbelievers, okay? The, the, the reality that now I am an old man and I wear eyeglasses and my hair is gray. Uh, the rea- we, we spent all day yesterday with the realities of a fallen world. The cursed ground, a big tree is overhanging my deck and dropping these nasty berries on my deck that if you step on them, it's like stepping on a gravel if they, if they burst, they get so stuck on the deck, a pressure washer will not blow them off. And I spent all day sawing on that stupid fallen tree, okay? It didn't get it finished. Didn't get, I, I thought, well, maybe we've done it. And I walked out this morning, and there were berries all over my deck. The, there's limbs 10 feet higher. I mean, I spent all day with my pole saw, which is 8 feet long, standing in the back of my pickup truck. I mean, I got the sore shoulders to prove it today. Because the ground is cursed. And I, I, I mean, if you'd have seen me at about 4.30 yesterday afternoon walking up to my driveway, and some of you walked up my driveway before, you know what I'm talking about. You'd have gone by that poor old 80-year-old man. <laughs> Bless his heart. I mean, I, 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 I was whooped. And if you'll remember the other day, remember the sweat of your face? I mean, I had the solid dust. And everything, and the glasses just nasty and sweat. Again, that's affliction. It comes in all kinds of different ways. Believe or unbelieve. I'm talking about that which is tied directly to your confession and your allegiance to the Lordship of Christ. You're, you're confessing biblical truth. And so there's hard persecution in the sense of, of codifying and criminalizing and prosecuting what is biblical behavior. I'm going to come back to this for a minute. But I am... I'm mad, and I'm terrified. If what I think I see in the culture, that's going to be a threat to your parenting of your young child. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But there, there's vigilante violence against Christians. Look, if, if you've not seen a clip from, a, from an abortion clinic protest, people going there to, to preach the gospel there on the street, you would think that they have absolutely thrown a match to the demons of hell, to the rhetoric and the threats that come from the pro-abortion crowd. And so again, the, the, the pro-bizarre behavior alphabet soup group, they will violently defend their turf. Even the economic repercussions, I told you recently, some of them very close to me, I think they lost their job over their Pride Month literature being disposed of appropriately. It went in file 13. If you don't know what file 13 is, that's the garbage can. Eight months later, he's out of a job. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I've mentioned this before. Banks looking at you or looking at this church and going, 
we, we just can't have your business. You're, you're part of one of those hate groups that defends biblical morality and biblical roles between man and woman. And if you're going to be a hater like that, we don't want your business. I can imagine insurance companies. Do you realize that the staff of this church, that the church pays for a liability policy? That if somebody sued us because we said something was sin and they went out and killed themselves? Don't think that far-fetched. When I first arrived at Centercrest, a friend of mine from Mississippi said, do you know about anybody at a particular mega church here in Birmingham, Alabama? One of the biggest churches around. And I, I, I said, no, I don't. And I said, oh, yeah, I do. He said, well, a family member of my church just went home and killed himself. And I got in touch with the pastor and told him what had happened. And, of course, he was rightly distressed and immediately went to the home. But whether it was tied directly to something he said in the sermon, again, I can imagine someone that is a homosexual or whatever hearing that homosexuality is a sin and you must repent, whether from the pulpit or being counseled and doing something harmful to themselves. And insurance companies, what? They don't, want to, they don't want to cover that liability. But that's where the culture is going. Now, there's soft persecution as well. You, you may be estranged from your friends or ignored or ridiculed, mocked and shamed, left out of things, but it's happening. And here's the thing. You, you see it all the way through the culture. Could you ever imagine a time where there's a term, instead of mothers, women who are pregnant, pregnant people? Now, I took a little biology, even in college. I dissected a fetal pig one time, in fact, and a rabbit and a frog. I forget what else. But anyway, I make no claim to be a scientist, okay? But I'm pretty sure 100% of those people that are pregnant are women. Okay? Pre preferred pronouns? Let me tell you, your, your pronoun is duh. If that's, if that's where you're going with that. Okay? But it is absolutely ridiculous. In certain school boards, were you to show up and object to boys using the girls' bathroom and boys playing on girls' athletic teams, you could be labeled as a terrorist. That's, that's fact, folks. That's fact. Now, let me tell you something. I was in college about the time, what is it, title 9, 10, 11, 12, 14, I don't know, the title that kind of equalized the money spent on women's sports, and that was hard fault. And all this stuff is doing is ruining athletics for girls, which I think are a good thing. Just listen, generally speaking, generally speaking, men are bigger, stronger, faster. Now that doesn't mean that Venus Williams wouldn't stomp me in the ground on the tennis court. I'm not saying, I'm just saying on the, on the whole, okay? The world champion, World Cup, adult ladies soccer team was beaten in a scrimmage by a 15-year-old all-star team in Dallas, Texas. The best woman's team in the world. Let me tell you something. You know, let's say I'm playing basketball in college. I'm good. I'm good. But I don't make it in the NBA. 
Now, my choices are to get a real job or all of a sudden come to that wonderful conclusion. You know what? I've been mistaken. I think I'm a woman. I'm going to play in the WNBA, and I mean, it beats working for a living. Does it not? And I guarantee you, I think there's 450 positions in the NBA. I guarantee you the 451st best basketball player in this country is far better than the best woman. Now, I know, that's, I know that sounds mean, and all, but again, but I see, the, and again, COVID revealed some crucial fault lines. You know, I went through a phase of life where if I got a sniffle, I went and got an antibiotic. You had babies in the home, had, had, uh, Dale was sick, so I didn't want anybody to get sick. And then when, we, when Ellen and I went to Kenya, where we met, and one of the doctors said, I want you to take this antibiotic every day you're over there. Take it prophylactically. I, I thought everybody, I did it. And I, when we got home, we got tired. I said, Ellen, did you take that antibiotic? She said, no, no. And I said, well, why not? I said, well, you know, you, you will set yourself up for disease-resistant antibiotics, okay? So, you know, that's something to think. We, some of our church members have had this issue. And they get put in quarantine in a hospital room. And if you go see them, you put on those yellow gowns and a mask and a hat and a whole nine yards. Been there, done that. Now, some of you parents that are raising young children, maybe you think, well, some of these traditional remedies for whatever, I I don't want to start my child on antibiotics. I think I want to let this cold run its course. Seems to me to be a reasonable thing. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes in and says, well, the AMA guidelines, American Medical Association guidelines, says that if your child has a cold for over 24 hours or fever, you have to do this, this, and this. And if you're not, we need to take your child with us so they'll be in the proper place to receive the care they need. Just over that issue. Now, now, think about what we're dealing with in, in the culture, that there are those that think teenagers should have the right to mutilate themselves or harm their bodies because they think they're not the gender they're born with. Just this week, Thursday, federal judge in Arkansas and I have to appreciate the sarcasm of Dr. Moeller's broadcast. Well, we perhaps can look back at the good old days when doctors practiced medicine and lawyers practiced law, but now we have lawyers practicing medicine. A judge turned over a law, and in an 80-page ruling, he stated that these laws that prohibit the utilization of all these techniques to transition kids from one gender to the other, rather than protecting children or safeguarding medical ethics, the evidence showed that the prohibited medical care involves the mental health and well-being of patients, and that by prohibiting it, the state undermined the interest it claims to be advancing. The various claims underlying the state's argument that the act protects children and safeguards medical ethics do not explain why only gender-affirming medical care and all gender-affirming medical care is singled out for the prohibition. Again, I can see a child saying, you know, I'm this, that, or the other, and parents say, no, you're, you're that, and we're not going to the doctor to get medicine, and you're not having surgery, and all of a sudden, what? They go to school and tell a teacher, and a teacher tells somebody else, 
and all of a sudden defects is knocking on your door. Again, the argument is that medical science has decided this. Well, in Western Europe, because they've been idiots a little bit longer than we have, they're already realizing this is stupid. Okay, it is not settled science. But, again, this judge wants to turn over a law. I continually mention the 87,000 IRS agent that the current administration wants to hire. Now, there are only 35,000 FBI agents on the payroll. 87,000 more IRS agents. I did the math. That means that in the state of Alabama, if we get our allotted 1,700 agents, they will be responsible for about 882 families. 800. Now, years ago when I was in business, my accountant said, you're not going to take a tax deduction for a home office. And while I was a business person, some things changed, and the IRS became very strict about what determines if a space is a home office. And he said, that's a red flag for an audit. If you claim that space, you're asking for the IRS to do an audit. Notice my term, red flag. How quickly do you think you could take a computer file with 882 families and say, how many of these people contributed 10% of their income to a church? If they did, maybe we need to take a look at it. One president's already used the IRS to target his political opponents. Think about all the things you put out there on social media. I mean, you know, I'm interested in buying an Auburn sweatshirt. And all of a sudden I get six ads on Facebook for Auburn sweatshirts. In 1998, there was a movie entitled Enemy of the State, Enemy of the State, starring Will Smith, Gene Hackman, and John Voight. Now, I emphasize this is fiction. This is a, but you know what? It was based on true events. And the funny thing, I, I saw the article about the connection to a six-part newspaper story. Google newspapers, young people. I know you don't know what that is, but, but. And I went back to try to find the article just to use it, and I couldn't find it. I Google searched the article and couldn't find it. I don't know. But the Gene Hackman character says this to the Will Smith character. The government has been in bed with the telecommunications industry since the 40s. They've infected everything. They get into your bank statements, computer files, email, listen to your phone calls, every wire, every airwave. The more technology used, the easier it is to keep tabs on you. Now, this is, 25, this is a 25-year-old movie. Fort Meade has 18 acres. Now, remember, this is fiction, okay? I don't know how much is... Fort Meade has 18 acres of mainframe computers underground. You're talking to your wife on the phone. You use the word bomb, president, Allah, any of 100 keywords. And the computer recognizes it, automatically records it, red flags it for analysis. That was 20 years ago, is what the character says. In the old days, we had to actually tap a wire into your phone line. Now with calls bouncing on satellites, they just reach out and snatch them right out of the air. Now, you can say that's, that's crazy, Tim, but listen, there are too many tools in place. There's too much venom on the ideological left being directed at anyone who defends biblical truth to think the IRS, the FBI, technology companies, the news media, media etc., will not un unleash a full-scale assault on us. Now, I say all of these things not for you to be paranoid. I say 
to you prophets in the home, be aware of what's going on, the trajectory, the agenda of the culture. And that's why, indeed, we must be a student, back to our text now, student of the Word. Continue, verse 14, in what you have learned, you've believed it, you know who taught you this, you've had it since your childhood, it's made you wise to salvation. The Scriptures are, are God's Word to us, it's God-breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, may be equipped in every good work. We have the tools. We have the technology. Right here it is. Right here it is, folks. This is how we stand against a decadent, decadent culture. And here's the thing, parents. In rightly dividing the word for your family, you need to understand that, that a young person is going to come in and they're going to say, my friend just told me, fill in the blank, any kind of immoral behavior. Or, and, they, and when I said, well, that's wrong, they said, well, you're supposed to love me. You're supposed to love me. Judge not lest you be judged. Who is without sin? Let them cast the first stone. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. Now, you be, need to be able to explain why that is a misappropriation of biblical truth and why what they're doing is sin. You, because your child will be sucked into that, okay? And they've been sucked into it for more than a generation. They need to be able to dismantle these smoke screens. You must be a proclaimer of the Word. Now, as I said, I'm making the connection. Paul is talking to young Timothy. He's functioning as an elder in the church. But I'm saying to you that this informs the prophet of his home. This informs the husband. And you are to preach the Word as one who will give an account to God. Preach the Word in your home. You need to convince your children. You need to convince your children that it is true and that it is necessary. I love this section of the Gospel of John where all these people leave Jesus because of the things he said was really, were really hard. And he looks at Peter and the rest and says, are you going to leave too? And his answer is, where else are we going to go? You and you alone have the words to eternal life. And you need to convince, listen, all other ground is sinking sand. No, I mean, the logical inconsistency, the irrationality, it will not work. You need to point it out. And they need to understand that this is the only path to true happiness and true success. Be a proclaimer of the Word. Notice verse 2, with complete patience. Now, thankfully, as I look at parents out here today, None of y'all have ever lost your temper or been impatient with your children, that you are perfectly serene and perfectly peaceful in each and every challenge. Yeah. But it's daily. You got to go through it again. 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 Okay? And so be prepared to teach your children. And remember the context we're in. Even the church, those that have itching ears, that want to hear that all of this is just fine. We need to be sober-minded, and we must fulfill our ministry. Let's move forward very quickly. I want to go to Ephesians 5 just for a word.
Ephesians 5, verse 15. The warning. Look carefully how you walk. It's dangerous out here. It is dangerous in the world. It is dangerous for you. It's dangerous for your ch children. So be careful and don't be foolish. The driving truth of the whole passage is found in verse 18. Don't be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Spirit of God. Be under His influence. Your life must be permeated with the Spirit. Now, how is it? Now, that, that is, you've heard me say, it's a present passive imperative. That means you've got to do it. It's got to keep, keep being done. And it's a command, and you can't do it for yourself. God must do it. So how do you do it? Go to the Word of God, and God uses that Word and Spirit to fill you. Now, Heath, here's our, this is our second million-dollar idea, okay? And I, I haven't, that, that one I gave you the other day, I'm still waiting on the check for my half, okay? Because I know, I know it's there. Now, here, listen to this. N-O, no word, N-O, no filling. K-N-O-W, no word, K-N-O-W, no filling. Beach towels, T-shirts, hats, posters, car tags. Okay, kind of fell flat, but it's true. No word, no filling. If you're not a student of your word, persistently and consistently, you're not filled with God's Holy Spirit. You will collapse, Okay. No word, no feeling. That drives us to the difficult concepts. Basically two words. Love, submit. Now let me tell you, I could destroy you just with those two words. You remember what I've said about law and gospel? God's law. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Would anybody like to stand before God one day and go, well, why should I let you into heaven? Hmm. I have loved my wife perfectly. Go to hell. Go straight to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Wives, why should I let you into my Well, I have submitted to my husband with the greatest of respect, and I have just, I've never failed. Same, go to hell. Go straight to hell. Do not collect, do not collect $200. Do, you know, yeah. And we're thankful that there is a husband who has loved his bride perfectly. And there's one who has perfectly submitted to the will of the Heavenly Father. That's the gospel for our sake. But it doesn't remove the imperatives of submitting and loving. It is a reality and it is difficult. I can imagine that in the military there have been literally thousands, if not millions of soldiers who were vastly more intelligent and more competent than their superior officers. Even in military matters. However, the military survives by a strict code of submission to superior officers. Now, to be sure, there are mechanisms in place to identify and replace those who are not up to the task of leadership. However, the chain of command is an absolute essential and virtually sacrosanct to maintaining military order and preparedness. A military can't exist without a well-respected chain of command. There must be Preparedness, a military, yeah. There must be order and that is based on the biblical principle of legitimate, that is biblically mandated and authority and submission. In a similar way, 
the principle must be recognized in marriage and in the family. There's no question that many wives are more intelligent than their husbands. Please no amens at this point. However, that fact doesn't reverse the biblical norm and mandate for wives to submit to their husbands. That is, you must rank yourself under your husband. To rebel against this is to continue the assault upon the family and upon God's plan that will wreak havoc in your life and in your home. Please remember this. Your rebellion is not only against your husband, it's against God and his good plan. Your collateral damage will extend far beyond the relationship of the husband and wife. Your confidence isn't in, isn't that your husband is infallible because he isn't, but God is infallible and his plan is wise and necessary for the sake of order within the home. Remember to destabilize the home is to undermine the gospel. Husbands and wives, if you say the Bible is true and applicable and you husbands are constantly not loving your wives and wives you're not constantly submitting and respecting your husband by, you're not submitting by correcting, criticizing, conspiring to undermine it out can't you see there's going to be a disconnect from your children, similar to the one I've mentioned many times of baby boomers leaving the church because of the disconnect. Finally, let's say a word about priority, real, reality, clarity, and unity. The priority of the essential family, the family remains foundational to human flourishing. It's the first school, the first government, and the first community. It is given by God and remains a testimony to both His wisdom and goodness. The centrality of reality. What's your truth? If I hear that again, I'll scream. What's your truth? It really doesn't matter what your truth or my truth is. It matters what God's truth is. We've created a world in which the statement that I'm a woman trapped in a man's body is believed to be both true and necessarily affirmed and celebrated for the good of everyone. Objective truth is declared through the examination of empirical evidence and it is denied when objective truth is regulated relegated to the irrelevant and immaterial the gospel which is rooted in real reality is absolutely lost along with salvation the clarity of God's will my favorite theologian Louis Grizzard was fond of making preacher jokes one of his lines was preaching ain't that hard they got that big old book to go by same thing could be said of every Christian you got that big old book to go by. We have clarity regarding the will of God. It's stated in the Bible, and tragically, not only does the world do what's natural to them, namely suppress the knowledge of the truth in their unrighteousness, but the church many times suppresses that truth. Sometimes it's in the name of being merciful or loving or kind or culturally relevant or some other misguided notion, but the end results are always the same. God's people are infected, the world is impoverished, and the truth is ignored to the detriment of present and future generations. The unity of the church. Paul wrote, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. This image is not of individual Christians or individual churches going out to fight their individual battles individually. It's a picture that is rooted in the unity of the church, of our common enemy and our common source of wisdom and our common king. Paul is drawing upon the imagery of the insurmountable military strategy of the Roman phalanx, the military strategy of the day that was undefeatable of men standing shoulder to shoulder fighting the enemy with their shields drawn together. If we give in, if we quit, 
If we lose in this battle, a battle that you can call cultural, you can call it moral, you can call it political, but no, make no mistake, this battle is spiritual. This battle is for the Bible and all of its essential implications. The battle began before the Garden of Eden was created, and the war came to us through the complicity, that is the rebellion, that is the rejection of biblical wisdom, that is the rejection of biblical order, that is the rejection of biblical roles, that is the rejection of the biblical gods that our first parents willfully pursued. What is the biblically defined difference between saying, no man's going to tell me what to do, and I'm a woman trapped in a man's body? I don't have to submit to my husband and Excuse me, the bo they both reflected defiance of biblical truth. After defiance comes denial. With defiance comes the pain of conscience. But once we cross into denial, the conscience is seared, and that awful truth that we hate so much is suppressed with God's wrath soon to follow. Our defiance and denial are, practiced, are, are practical. Our, once defiance and denial are practiced, all anchors to objective truth and real reality are lost. With that loss goes the entirety of the biblical testimony, and with that goes the gospel, and with that goes salvation. I pray that at least as far as our time and place is concerned, we're not making truths last stand. Justice the biblical family is real reality. We turn our attention to the real reality of the Lord's Supper. Real objects eaten and drank by real people in a real world, living to the glory of a real Savior whose name is Jesus. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. God, may we be wise. May we be informed. May we believe. And may we be in reality well equipped for the task of our day. Bless us as we continue our worship in Jesus' name. Amen.